Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14? We're in Deuteronomy chapter 14. We said that uh, we're going to have Labor Day, and then when we're back here on September 8th, we are going to begin a survey, which is a bird's eye view of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi in one school year, nine months. We're going to see how the Old Testament weaves together with the New Testament. But today is just a teaser from Deuteronomy 14. It's just one of those paragraphs and places in our Bibles that shows us how effortlessly, how seamlessly a passage of Scripture can tap into our greatest human longing and see it unravel in Scripture over millennia, cultures, languages, until it is fulfilled and consummated in the kingdom of God. I hope you see all of that today in Deuteronomy chapter 14. I'm going to read beginning in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of the herd and flock, that you may always learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you show us yet another side of your glory this morning. We saw a side in worship. We saw a side in the Apostles' Creed. We saw a side in confession and assurance. Now we see yet another facet of this beautiful diamond that is your precious fame for the nations. Let us savor that this morning. Let that be our theme and our song we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is talking about the Old Testament tithe. This is back in the Old Testament. This is in Deuteronomy. Things work differently within the nation of Israel, as we're going to see as we go through this study. And so the Old Testament tithe, as awesome as this sounds, is not exactly how we practice New Testament generosity and giving. Within the church, we have instructions in the New Testament for giving towards ministry and missions. But even just by reading how Israel practiced the tithe and what God commanded from them, we learn a lot about the God who gives the instructions here. And so just in the few minutes that we have together, I want to make one simple point from these two paragraphs, and that is what comes through loud and clear in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is this. God knows how to party. God knows how to throw a party. 
He knows how to give instructions for a host to throw a party. God knows how to party. If you're confused about the Old Testament tithe, it comes to us in three very easy steps. All of them are Godward. We're just going to walk through how we would practice this tithe before God. Step number one, verses 22 and 23, you gather together the tithe. So there are specific instructions about 10% of it mentions your seed, your grain, your wine, your oil. Jesus mentioned in the New Testament that the Pharisees added on top of that a tithe from their herb garden, their mint and their rue. They threw that in the mix as well. So you get 10% of all of those things plus every firstborn of the flock and herd. Now, that's going to take a while to get in your barn and your field to collect all of those things. And so it's going to give you time as a worshiper to reflect as you're gathering that this just represents a fraction of all your income. And you have it solely because, verse 24, the Lord your God blesses you. He has given this to you and entrusted this to you. None of this was reluctant on God's part. He is happy to bless us both spiritually and materially. I think the reason that God loves a cheerful giver is because God himself is a cheerful giver. He's happy to give good gifts to his children and to bless us. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. He loves to give good gifts. So we take this step and we marvel at God's good and perfect generosity. That's step one. Now we're ready for step two, which comes to us in verses 24 and 25. You're going to figure out how far you live from where the temple is ultimately going to be in Jerusalem. So if you live close by in Bethlehem, you just grab your stuff and you go. If you land further away from Jerusalem, if you're up in Dan or over in Gilead, then you've got to convert all of this stuff to cash and you've got to bring the money with you so that you can spend it in Jerusalem. So at the time of this writing, the people are still wandering in the wilderness. They haven't conquered the promised land. They don't have Jerusalem. They only have a tabernacle. The temple has not been built yet. So verse 23 is one of those pregnant Christological promises when it says, you're going to do this before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name, and you could translate tabernacle there. That's where he's going to tabernacle. In other words, Israel, you you get a tabernacle now before you meet the tabernacle who will come, John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and he tabernacled, he lived among us. That's all in step two. Step three, my favorite step, verse 26, in a word, party. Party. Did you read verse 26? Did you hear when I said this? And spend, if, if this wasn't here on the page in front of you, you wouldn't believe that this was in the Old Testament. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. 
verses 27 through 29, expand that and say, include the Levites who are the tribe that are dedicated to full-time ministry. They have no portion, so include them in your wealth and your celebration and include the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow in these festivities that you have before the Lord. Now, let me get this straight. You want me to take 10% of my annual income. We're talking thousands of dollars. If you're a school teacher, we're talking hundreds of dollars. You want me to pull my resource, 10% of my resources, and throw a party with that money. Like I'm going to invite my pastors, my Levites, my household, the poor to this extravagant feast. We're going to serve luxurious food and drink so much so that those who attend will be able to take some home and it will sustain them throughout the year. That's how you want me to spend my money before the Lord. That's what Deuteronomy 14 is saying. Now I'm sure that you had some frugal dads here, like myself, listening to these instructions and thinking, you know, this is a little over the top. This is a little crazy. We're not going to, we don't need to be buying lamb chops in this economy, right? Until the 2020 election, let's just, let's keep it tight, man. We're not investing. We're not buying lamb chops. I've done this to my wife before. What if instead of oxen, we do turtle doves, you know? They're a little gamey. They're a little bony, they're on sale at Costco. They can feed a crowd. Let's just serve turtle dough. We'll invite everybody here. We'll serve it. We'll save a bunch of money. We'll give some of that money to missions. God is glorified. Praise God. And you would have a Levite sitting at my house crunching on bony turtle doves. And he would lean over and say, brother, you have totally missed the point of this worship service. You have utterly missed the point, And this is the worst party that I've ever been to. God is saying, spend the money for what you desire, for whatever your appetite craves. Your appetite is actually invited to the worship service. It's not a liability, it's an asset. God gave it to you so that you could bring it within a created world to worship him. If you're not honest with your God-given desires, you will fail to worship him on this point and you are going to throw a lame party that Levites don't want to come to. So for me personally, I'm not really an oxen and wine kind of guy. Maybe you are. I'm more of a ribeye steak and rye bourbon kind of guy. That's what excites me. Awesome Buy it, bring it, share it, and make people happy with the sheer luxury of a feast that's laid before them. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice. It is an act of worship to eat good food, to drink good drink with friends in the presence of God with gratitude. That's a worship service. God came up with this. And gives it to us. I wonder if you knew that God was like this. I wonder if you have seen and experienced this side of God. The Deuteronomy 14 side of God. Which is the playful, the lavish, the earthy, the foodie side of God. Do you know this? Have you experienced this in the God that you worship? 
Do you know that crave and desire are not always dirty words? We use them as dirty words. They, they kind of have a corner on the market in the Christian church to be linked to temptation to do bad and sinful things. But they are not always that way. And here they are holy and lush words for us to crave and desire. They mean to have a God-given urge for a God-given gift like food or drink or sex or sunsets or friendship or nature or work or weather. Whatever God has created and given to you that you can receive and worship. You crave it. You desire it. You long for it. And that is good and holy and right and true. You know the reason that God makes the sun rise in the morning like this flaming ball of fire that crests the horizon and paints the sky with a different hue every single morning? Instead of the obvious way to do things, which would be at 6 a.m. to flip on a fluorescent light so that everybody could see, It is for the sheer luxury of it. You see it. It's beautiful. It makes you happy. It pleases the the senses. And it turns your heart in worship to God for the luxury of what you enjoy. These are invitations to worship. These are essential to our enjoyment of God and gratitude for the good gifts that he gives. If I always think enjoyment, if I always think craving and desiring and longing are bad things, I'm going to miss the good gifts that God gives to us. Jesus said, if you then, who are evil, no offense, y'all are wicked people. And you know how to give a good gift to your children. You know what's going to make them happy on Christmas morning. How much more will your Father who is in heaven know how to give good gifts to his kids? He knows it, and he delights to do it. Well, fast forward to the New Testament. Get away from this tithe, this tabernacle, this feast. And even though we leave that testament, we actually never leave a God who is lavish to give generous gifts to enjoy in his presence as worship. God never loses his knack for a good party. Never. Old or New Testament. My case in point is Jesus' very first miracle. The first miracle he ever did. I always tell my students, my seminary students... You only get one first impression miracle, right? You don't get two, you get one, so make it count. I'm kidding, I don't have seminary students, and I've never said that to anybody, but that's important. (laughs) If you're going to do a miracle, do it right, and this is Jesus' first miracle, the first miracle that he does. Some of you know the story. He attends a wedding in Cana, and just the fact that he's there by the time the wine runs out tells you something about Jesus. He's still hanging around at the party after everybody has drank everything that's there to drink. Parties are made to attend to the end. I think about myself when I perform a wedding and and I kind of have this working rubric in mind that I'll stay at the, the reception afterwards for about 15 minutes for every year that I've known the couple. 
okay? So, I mean, I've left a reception so fast, I forgot to sign the marriage license, and some guy with an online ordination had to do it for me at the reception. It's embarrassing, but Jesus is here. He stays for the entire party, and I know that we'd like to picture him because we want to protect him, maybe standing solemnly in the corner and answering questions about the kingdom of heaven, but maybe he's on the dance floor. Maybe he's actually having a good time, and he's there, and the party one runs out of wine, and Jesus' mother, Mary, doesn't yet fully know that he's the son of God, but she at least knows this much about her son. When a party is in crisis, I'm going to go to him. He's going to know what to do. He's going to ramp this thing back up. So she goes to Jesus, says, what should we do? And Jesus has one of three options. Number one, he could rightly say, everybody's had enough to drink. If you have literally drank everything that's here, that's probably enough. Go in peace. (laughs) Number two, he could have made a few gallons of a generic Trader Joe's red. Okay? (laughs) We're just going to tack this on the end, have a little bit of that, and then you'll want to go. Or number three, he could take six stone jugs and make 180 freaking gallons of the best wine the master of the feast has ever tasted. That's what Jesus does. Do you hear the sheer luxury of what he is doing in this place? And that is just the beginning. Jesus is going to go on and attend parties with tax collectors and sinners. He's going to host picnics for thousands of hungry people. He's going to tell his followers to throw dinner parties and invite the poor to them. He's going to liken heaven to a wedding feast. He's going to liken salvation to feasting on himself, to eating him as the bread of life from whom we will never hunger again. And in one of his last gospel resurrection appearances, he's doing what he has been doing his entire ministry and that is he's on the beach grilling fish so that his disciples can sit with him and eat. Things get so lavish and generous around Jesus, people start asking questions. Who is this guy and what is he doing? Why do John the Baptist's disciples fast and Jesus' disciples, they never fast? No wonder they're leaving John and going to Jesus. Jesus' disciples are always eating. They're eating every time we see them. They're even walking through grain fields on the Sabbath day, picking grain because they're always snacking on something. They don't even wash their hands before they eat. Is Jesus a glutton and a drunkard? That's what they're asking. Did you see him at, at Matthew's party last night? I was... I was trying to count his drinks. I knew that would be important, and I saw three or four, but I lost track. Is he a glutton and a drunkard? But of course, things culminate for Jesus in the Lord's Supper. He could have chose any sign for a sacrament to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But no surprise, seeing where we've been, where we've come from through his ministry, that he chooses food and drink in God's presence as the sign of remembrance for what he has done. No wonder when you greet the church in Acts chapter 2, you read, 
day by day, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Good food, good drink, good friends, all in the presence of a God who knows how to party. That was his design in Eden when he fellowshiped and communed and was there with Adam and Eve as they feasted. It was God's design to show a hint of restoring this fellowship as we see in places like Deuteronomy chapter 14 and the tithe and then Leviticus and the peace offerings. It's the regular sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Eating meals becomes the preeminent symbol of community in the New Testament and all of this is a mean to get us ready for heaven. You taste good food, you drink good drink, you're with friends in God's presence, and it makes us think of heaven. Some of you guys are new to South Carolina. Some of you are first-time students here at USC. Uh, In October, we're going to have the South Carolina State Fair. And if you ask somebody, what's the fair?, The only appropriate answer is food. The fair equals food. I mean, you've got turkey legs, and you've got euros, and you've got salty french fries, and you've got fried Oreos, and fried cheesecake, and fried Coke, and fried sticks of butter. You've got donuts, you've got funnel cake, you've got snow cones, you've got chili dog, you've got it all. I'm simultaneously getting hungry and having a heat flash, just thinking about all this food. The fair is food. The prophet Isaiah, who is writing 700 years after Moses in Deuteronomy, wants to tell us about heaven. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is the food. I want to tell you the kingdom's coming. And I want to tell you that we're going to eat well when it comes. Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, listen to this, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The next time you drink a good drink, the next time you eat good food, the next time you are with friends in God's presence with gratitude, remember that this is God's idea, God's invention, for his fame, for your enjoyment, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. What a lavish, free, and generous God. Lord, I pray as we prayed from the end of Ephesians that our lives would be reaching our hands into the granary of the love and grace and material generosity that you give us and pulling out a handful to share one with another. And when we do that, when we party well, when we enjoy creation well, I pray that that will be a witness to a watching city. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.